Just gonna run this dog to see if we can find any type of uh, human remains that are left. Listen to Where Secrets Go to Die, The Disappearance of Derek Hennigan. From the Detroit Free Press, a new podcast set in the woods of Michigan's Upper Peninsula. Available on Apple, Spotify, Freep.com, or wherever you get your podcasts. December 8th, 1992. Silvia Okiki, who would later change her name to Anusik, is in Ljubljana, Slovenia. Intrigued by public health and nutrition topics, she's studying there on a Fulbright scholarship. Anusik is also a teacher herself. That's because, with her in Slovenia, are her two young sons. One of the boys is still in the process of being potty trained. To encourage him to use the toilet, Anusik tells the young boy that Santa Claus might bring his father for Christmas if he goes on the potty. The little boy goes to the bathroom and does just that. A short time later, there's a knock at the door. Arriving in Ljubljana, just in time for the holiday season, is the boy's father, renowned American jurist and soon-to-be international fugitive, Joseph F. Okiki. Welcome back to Jelling the Judge. of his attorneys, Okiki had been largely silent during his widely publicized public corruption trial. That began to change after he was convicted in late 1989 and then sentenced in June of 1990 to serve two to five years in prison. In the midst of what you might characterize as a public relations campaign, Okiki started giving more interviews. The ex-judge told a reporter with Channel 10 News that he still felt supported by many people in Cambria County. Those for whom I had done the most are the ones that had run the farthest. Uh, those uh, ordinary people who know me for what I am come up to me, shake my hand, as uh, you saw earlier here, and wish me luck and wish me well. To the Altoona Mirror in March of 1990, Okiki said, quote, The truth will prevail. The truth will set me free. End quote. Maybe Okiki was banking on the truth, but he was also crafting a backup plan. With prison on the horizon for the judge, he began making arrangements to fly out of the country. According to a state police record, Anusik surrendered Okiki's passport back on April 7th of 1989. So how was he able to fly out of America undetected? Brian Sukenik, a longtime friend of Okiki, remembers receiving an unexpected phone call about a year after the judge had fled the country. I got a phone call. And my mom goes, it's for you. And I got on... And he goes, hey, Brian, it's a judge. And I, we chit-chatted for a while. I said, I said, well, how's Slovenia? And he said, oh, I love it. I'm, I'm teaching. I'm doing this. I'm doing that. And I said, well, that's good. And I said, now, can you explain to me how you got out of the country since you had to forfeit your American passport? And he says, I'm not an American. Essentially, because his parents had been born in what later became Slovenia, Okiki had a dual citizenship. Walt Komorowski, one of the lead investigators of Okiki, explained how the judge slipped through their net. I was always under the impression that when you moved to the United States, let's say, uh, that you renounced your old citizenship and, and petitioned the government for citizenship here. But I'm not sure what, what the dynamic was there, but... He still had his Yugoslav passport. Were you aware of that until he had fled? 
No. Okay, so that was totally so unaware. That part was a surprise to you was that he had yeah. this sort of. We thought uh, by taking his uh, United States passport from him uh, that we were we were guaranteed his presence at the second trial, but nope. Anusik said her husband made a total of two trips between America and Slovenia in 1992 and 1993. He went to Canada, he flew to Germany, he rented a car, and he drove down to Slovenia. And he had the car, and, uh, and then um, I guess he returned, it was a rental car. But I had found his notes just lately about what cars he was going to rent, when, where he was going to rent, where he was going to go to get the tickets and everything. Nobody reported him that sold him the tickets. It was a state college... Uh, uh, travel agency, a friend of ours, sold him the tickets. And I talked to this friend and I said, I'm so sorry. I hope, you know, you didn't have any problems when the police came to see you. He goes, oh, heck no. I got so much business over that. I want to thank you for doing that. I'm like, oh gosh. But anyway, um, so that was the first time. The first journey went apparently undetected entirely. News of his departure to Europe wasn't reported until his second trip in March of 1993. There was the storm of the century. Um, and he, somehow somebody got word to him or me that one of his building, the roof had fallen down. So he goes, you know, I better really go back because all my papers are probably flying all over the neighborhood and it's going to be a mess and everything. So then on the 14th of January, he went back. He went back through Toronto. Um, let me see, let me get this. Here it is. Uh, Frankfurt, Toronto, and then Toronto... Looks like Munich. Anyway, he came from Ljubljana, and he came back, and he ended up in Reagan Airport. On, and he was seen by somebody at Reagan Airport, at least the Attorney General said. So anyway, he went back and did his bit, all the business he took care of. Then, the second time he came back, um, he knew he wouldn't get justice. He had heard the Supreme, the Supreme Court had refused to hear his appeal. So on the 2nd of March... He flew from Toronto to Munich, and then um, the next day he came to Ljubljana on Air, Air, Audrey Airways. And after that, he never went back to, to the U.S. He died, and he's buried in Slovenia. Back in America, speculation about Okiki became rampant. Some news outlets reported alleged Okiki sightings in places such as State College. According to Anusik, these return visits to the States never took place. Others questioned why authorities weren't attempting to bring the judge back to America. This was the subject of a Channel 8 news report. And according to Slovene authorities, he is safe from extradition here because he's a registered Slovene citizen. But it may shock you to find out, as of last week, the equivalent of the head of the Slovene FBI says no extradition demands have been made for Okiki. You have not been contacted by the FBI. No. You have not been contacted by the Attorney General of Pennsylvania. No. You have been contacted, you have not been contacted by Interpol. No. There is nothing in the computer for Interpol that says extradite this person from your country. No. The Attorney General's office says contacts have been made by the FBI through the State Department and the proper channels. Prosecutor Klaus says he doesn't know why Slovene authorities would dispute that. But Slovene top cop Mitya Klavora says the only contact he's had with any American law enforcement agency was a phone call from a Cambria County deputy sheriff who was inquiring about Slovene extradition policies. In a letter, Klavora explained that Okiki can't be taken from the country, but under a proposed treaty, he could serve a sentence in Slovenia. But he says Okiki's convictions would have to stand under Slovene law and he doesn't know enough about the case 
to make a judgment on that yet. So Kiki could go to jail here in Slovenia, but bear in mind, doing time here is not like doing time in Western Penn. Nonviolent offenders often only have to spend the night in jail and check in. They live normal lives otherwise. They go to work, they do everything else a normal person would do. It's just room and board on the house, so to speak. Okiki's legal problems weren't his biggest worry in Slovenia. The former judge had cancer and was suffering from poor health. Still, Anusik said he had a happy and productive life overseas. You know, I was, I was always amazed by him because even though he was so sick, he had all these troubles. Um, the state had taken away his, they had maneuvered, all the little soldiers had maneuvered to take away his disability, which he worked really hard for, take away his social security, which he had paid into his whole life. And they were trying to take away his house because he had sold his house. And the deal was that this person that bought it um, should pay the mortgages. But the person who bought it was colluding with Dick Green. And they were, I, I even just saw it today, put, keep put the, here it is, uh, keep the pressure on this guy. And it was about a foreclosure on the house. And then it says, thanks, Scott. Scott was the one that bought the house. So, you know, all that that was going on in Okiki's life, they took away his law license. He still had the energy and will and drive to go out and work and contribute to the to the household. He worked for, and I have documents, because in Slovenia you have a little book, and when you work for someone, they stamp it. He worked as a school teacher for a year. Uh, he worked for the mayor of Ljubljana, um, Dmitry Rupel. I have papers I have uh, that he wrote for Rupel. I have Rupel's name on a contract. He was a contractor with him, not a, you know, a permanent employee. He worked for um, some organizations teaching English. Uh, they had a lot of those in Slovenia at that time. They had a private school. He worked for, at the very end, he changed his name to Bogdan Onusik. And he worked for FIDAS, which was a chamber of commerce. And he was in the uh, the Erodny uh, list, which is is like the federal um, paper that that's put out. He was named as the secretary of this fetus, and that was like two or three months before he died. So he kept working, even though he endured all these surgeries and chemo's and hospitalizations. Um, he continued to work, and he wrote a book. It's called uh, "Doing Business in Slovenia." I have a copy of it in the chapters, not the actual book, but um, the photocopies of it. And I know who he wrote it with. I, I'm in contact with that as a law professor. So he, he wrote several articles on, you know, doing business in Slovenia. Um, he worked for Gospodarski Vestnik, which was the biggest publisher of um, business-related books in Slovenia. So he had a lot of good relationships with people like, you know, the head of the European Union mission, the minister I worked for, uh, the minister of health almost hired him um, because they needed a legal consultant. And um, Dr. Dushan Kabru, who was the minister after that, he had very good relationships with a lot of people. They liked him. And um, so, yeah, his, his life over there, he was, he was sick and he was miserable. But until the very, very end, he really tried to be active father and, and be and work. And what of the others involved with the Okiki saga? Richard Griffo, the senior judge from Northampton County who presided over the case, was quoted in 1991 about wanting to write a book on the case. Griffo said that the Okiki affair had widespread recognition, noting its coverage in the Wall Street Journal. He shrugged at ethical questions regarding whether he could be impartial about potential proceedings, stating that there was no conflict of interest. 
The book, however, was never published. Lawrence Klaus, who prosecuted the judge on behalf of the Commonwealth, had a long and distinguished career. As assistant district attorney in Allegheny County, he worked to secure the convictions of the Ory sisters, Joan, a Pennsylvania Supreme Court justice, Jane, a former state senator, and a third sister who worked as a staffer. Not unlike Okiki, the Orys were found to have misused government resources for personal gain. Klaus even has a fund named after him at a local college, the Indiana University of Pennsylvania's Lawrence N. Klaus Political Science Library Fund. Those who contribute to this fund help students purchase political science books, journals, and online educational resources. A few others involved on all sides of the Okiki affair fell into hard times after the judge's conviction. Attorney Neil Price, who helped with the Okiki defense, would be disbarred after an unrelated matter. Rick Kirkham, who met the judge in 1990 and researched his case while reporting for an episode of Inside Edition, fell into drug addiction and became the focal point of an anti-drug biopic called TV Junkie. We asked Kirkham for an interview in his home from Norway. Though the interview fell through, he told us he did feel that the judge, quote, got screwed in this matter. In June of 95, about five years after his office had prosecuted Okiki, Attorney General Ernest Priate was stepping down. The New York Times reported that Priate was taking a plea agreement to avoid a trial and the indictment of his two brothers, Carlin and Robert. The charge against Priate was mail fraud. Federal authorities maintained that the Attorney General, while running for election in 1988, accepted $20,000 in cash contributions that weren't properly reported. The funds had come from illegal video poker machine operators. And there's perhaps an irony in the fact that Priet was convicted for gambling ties that were similar to what was alleged of Okiki back when the grand jury was impaneled in the late 1980s. Not unlike Okiki, Priet had a dramatic fall from grace. Just a few years before his conviction, Priet was a favorite for the governorship of Pennsylvania, losing a fairly close race to Tom Ridge in the Republican primary. Ridge would go on to become governor. Priet ultimately served 14 months at the federal prison in Minnesota. And after a five-year suspension, he returned to practicing law, which he continues to do in Scranton. We also asked Priate to speak with us for this podcast. He declined, but laughed and said, quote, Thanks for the memories, kid. End quote. Regarding why he wouldn't participate in the podcast, Priate said he remembers little about the Okiki affair. He then shared some personal thoughts about the late judges swearing in at the Cambria County Courthouse. Quote, It was more like the coronation of a king than the swearing in of a president judge. That is my recollection, that he suffered from delusions of grandeur. End quote. As for Okiki in Slovenia, life was, according to his widow, shockingly normal. All the while, Okiki was still telling the media he hoped to return home to America. Someday, somehow, somewhere, I'll be back in Cambridge County. And Okiki also had revenge on his mind. He was doing some writing, and his topic of choice was corruption in Pennsylvania. The judge was maintaining his innocence and compiling documentation about the people he believed had wronged or betrayed him, and he was bringing these allegations to federal authorities. So what became of the judge in his little black book? Tune into the fifth chapter of Jailing the Judge. Next time on Jailing the Judge. And then the Stooges uh, showed up, Komorowski and Russell. I don't know what he knows. He can't talk to him if he's overseas. And I mean, the guy's been a loony to him for the last couple of years. Write a book. I have the first draft written. It deals with the legal system of Pennsylvania. And uh, they said, your husband passed away. So I went over there right away and I saw him and everything. And then he was, that was the 2nd of December. Then he was... Um, buried on the 6th of December. Jailing the Judge is hosted and written by me, Bruce Seeley. Reporting conducted by me and Eric Kita. Produced by Kita and Michelle Ganassi. The show is scored by Billy O'Shea with the theme music, The Party After the Show, provided by the crew of The Half Moon. Graphic design by Rick Kasmer. Special thanks to Brian Whipke and the team at Gannett. This podcast is a product of Our Town and the Daily American. For online extras, visit dailyamerican.com. 
Just going to run this dog to see if we can find any type of uh, human remains that are left. Listen to Where Secrets Go to Die, The Disappearance of Derek Hennigan. From the Detroit Free Press, a new podcast set in the woods of Michigan's Upper Peninsula. Available on Apple, Spotify, Freep.com, or wherever you get your podcasts.